Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two women who will soon graduate from their respective international affairs and global communications programs. But nonetheless, believe that they are the most qualified people you could ever find to present you with a cross-cutting look on the latest trending global matters. Each month, a different student host will bring you a new expert to unpack the hashtags you see in your news feeds. Inspired? Curious? Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. We're literally always on our phones, perusing for new content, so we will absolutely reply. I'm Robin Gloss, the host of this week's episode of the Foreign Affairs Inbox. From September 20th to 27th, 2019, over 7.6 million people, including many young people, took part in climate strikes across the globe. This was the largest environmental mobilization in history, capturing public and governmental attention in the days leading up to the strike. Since the end of September, much of the initial media coverage has since faded, and I'm here to discuss the future of global environmental advocacy with Professor Michael Swoboda. Professor Swoboda is part of the University Writing Program at GW and is a regular contributor to Yale Climate Connections, a multimedia platform providing daily reporting and analysis on the threat of climate change. He is currently working on a book that explores the way climate change is highlighted and often ignored in books, movies, and news media. Professor Swoboda, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. So to start, can you tell me a little bit about the global climate strike and how the movement emerged? I think it emerged from individual students in different countries taking action on their own. But most notable was Greta Thunberg in Sweden, who began a strike from uh, daily classes. I think she took every Friday off. There were a couple of students in the United Kingdom and a couple in the United States, I think, who took similar actions. Greta Thunberg decided to make a trip from Europe to the United States, took a sailboat for that purposes. And I think strikes that had already been planned to run a climate change meeting in New York City became further mobilized by her arrival in the United States. And that, I think, precipitated a round of strikes worldwide. So beyond Greta, what factors allowed the climate strike to gain momentum and recognition? And similarly, in your eyes, what factors sort of limited the influence or attention that was given to the strike? Well, there's been an effort going on for decades now to mobilize action on climate change, and it's had its ebbs and flows. There have also been some efforts focused on youth. There has been a long-standing global action network, which is primarily aimed at at young people, high school and college age. There's also been a series of lawsuits that are focused on children who are suing either fossil fuel companies or the government for failing to take action. And those suits have been proceeding through the courts. And as they've won victories, they've contributed to the momentum. And so I think when particular actions take place or meetings take place, those become the focal point of this year's action. How do you think that the fact that the climate strike has been primarily led by youth or that young people have become the face of the climate strike has shaped media reactions to it? Media reaction has been sharply split. So if you watch conservative websites and news agencies, they are pretty dismissive and they actually would accuse the parents of engaging in propaganda using their children as tools. 
The center and left youth are applauded for taking action on their own and for putting their putting adults on the hot seat for not taking action. And so they're generally applauded. And I think in Greta's case, the fact that she's on the autism spectrum and has worked with that, I think has impressed adults mostly. <laughs> on the right, you'll see some pretty vicious attacks on her, actually. But I think we also need to put this in the context of the Parkland students and their efforts to mobilize on behalf of gun control or gun legislation. And I think that movement provided some practice and some fuel for the climate strike. And behind that would be the Women's March in Washington, which again was grassroots led and highly successful in getting large numbers of people onto the street worldwide. So I think we're getting better at this kind of thing. And uh, students in particular are getting better at this kind of thing. Beyond the climate strikes, are there other environmental advocacy movements we see across the globe that have emerged along with the climate strike or in response to it? There are movements related to the oceans, and there are actions both uh, in the private sector and the public arena about the oceans. There are efforts related to environmental justice or climate justice, and there's been for the last several decades, last two decades at least, events associated with the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, with the United Nations Environment Program, with the Sustainable Development Program. So those are ongoing. I think the struggles over immigration, which you could attribute at some level to climate change, have created a major obstacle to that. So the rise of nationalism has generally been opposed to globalist movements like taking action on climate change. And I think we're now kind of trying to sort out how we will move from where we are to genuine action on climate change. And whether the children's climate strike can get past that obstacle, I think remains to be seen. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the relationship you see between immigration and nationalism and environmental advocacy or the climate strike specifically? There's some evidence that the uh, situation in Syria was made more tense, worse by droughts that could be traced back to changes in the climate. Likewise, other events in the Middle East, other uh, climate disturbances in the Middle East and to some degree in Russia, which affected food supplies in that region. So that put a lot of people under stress. They protested against the governments. Their governments cracked down. That produces waves of immigration those waves of immigration into Europe and the United States. But first Europe, I think, spark backlash in those countries. So there's a resistance to Syrian refugees and refugees from Africa entering Europe, France, Germany, England. And each of those countries have experienced a rise in nationalism and obstacles raised to the sort of global agendas of the governments that had been in power when that started. I think you can see Trump as kind of a reaction to that. Moving forward with the climate strike in our rearview mirror, how do you think environmental activists and other young people can work to actually make sure that change happens as a result of their social movements? That's a very good question. (laughs) I think everyone who is engaged in climate change and action on climate change is trying to figure out how do we craft messages that can, on the one hand, bridge political divides 
and on the other hand, mobilize action. And it could be that those are two very different processes. I think what happens uh, in the United States in 2020 will be a, a significant factor in what kinds of movements get off the ground, how they can succeed in mobilizing governmental action. We are waiting to see what happens. People are trying different remedies, and we have a lot of experimenting to do in terms of how we create messages that will unite people, will mobilize action while not terrifying them. You don't want messages that paralyze people into inaction because they just see no way out of the problem. And I think that's the real challenge we face. Quinn Thunberg, and maybe the demand from children that there be action may make it harder for some groups not to act. On the other hand, it, it may make it easier for other groups to dismiss this as another overdramatic exaggeration of the problem. Can you paint a picture of, on the day of the climate strikes, what it looked like when these millions of people took to the streets? It looked a lot like previous mass mobilizations. I think in Washington, it was less than the Women's March, and I think it was probably less than a climate march a year or two prior. I think it was bigger in New York. I think the demographics were different. There were more young people involved. And I think the message that adults need to respect the legitimate needs of the younger generations in thinking about how they're going to act on climate change that was given greater focus in this march than in previous marches. I think it was a greater distribution of the marches, which I think distinguished this from previous actions, which were focused on a few major cities. And again, the greater participation of young people as opposed to the usual organizers of these marches. The march, I think, in 2016 actually had like specific groups that were all lined up in a particular order scientists, indigenous people, women, politicians, children. I think this was more of an organic mix with a greater concentration of young people. Are there any notable responses from either governments or nonprofits or large corporations after the climate strike? Again, I think it depends on the group or organization you're looking at. Democrats, those on the left, embraced the climate strike. And even though I think Greta Thunberg shocked a couple of people, notably Senator Markey, I think, by suggesting that he hadn't done enough in his position. On the right, climate strikers were mocked as naive, as being manipulated by the environmental organizations behind them. They weren't taken seriously. And I think that reaction was probably duplicated around the globe. It's kind of odd that this is the case, but English-speaking countries have the strongest anti-climate movements or anti-action movements. For some reason, there's a correlation between speaking English and being more prone to skepticism about climate science. And so I think we would have seen similar reactions in England, Australia, and to a lesser degree, Canada. Part of the response to the climate strike and to Greta Thunberg in particular have been some interesting pop culture reactions. So one group put together a Greta Thunberg help site where adults could call in if they're disturbed by Quinn Thunberg's activism and the callers on duty talk them down. And it's pretty funny. And then there was heavy metal rendition of Quinn Thunberg's speech to the UN done with a screaming voice, perfectly lip-synced with her speech to that UN luncheon. And that's gotten a lot of views. And I think on both sides, these are people who want to promote action and want to make fun of the 
over-the-top negative reactions to her. And I think that kind of a dialogue can help us keep a better balance when we're talking about these things. Given that this has been such a passionate and such an almost aggressive movement, what sorts of fears or motivating factors are behind this sort of advocacy? The climate strike is just like a moment in an ongoing attempt to both communicate the problem and get action going on the problem. And so I think focusing too tightly on it mm-hmm. is problematic. I mean, so for instance, this is a piece written by someone who lives in California and we're experiencing this bizarre situation where because of the fear of wildfires, people in Northern California are going without power. This is an advanced economy and they don't have power because we can't manage the fire risk associated with climate change, which is at some level absurd, and nobody predicted that. We have a warning from 11,000 scientists that we're approaching a climate emergency. We have people trying to figure out how do we deliver this message without getting people so frightened that they can't act or they see no hope. And I think every attempt to mobilize action on climate change runs that risk. How do you get people concerned but still keep them hopeful? And that's a challenge. You talked about international agreements and international relations as a part of the climate strikes. What role do you think those frameworks and those agreements play in the future of environmental advocacy? In the past, they've provided occasions for action. And the move from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Climate Agreement was an attempt to switch the basis under which countries were going to act. So under the Kyoto Protocol, there was an attempt to require action that was going to be monitored by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the countries were supposed to make hard and fast commitments. That didn't happen. Well, some countries did make commitments. Most of them missed those commitments. The United States refused to sign onto the treaty, and that made further negotiations difficult. The change with Paris was to a voluntary system, which is supposed to come from the countries themselves, not from the global organization. And it looked like that could work, but all of the evidence suggests that the voluntary commitments, well, we we know that the voluntary commitments made thus far are far short of the 1.5 goals, far short of the 2-degree goal, and and likely would lead to 3 degrees if that's all we see. And even those commitments may not be kept because of the turmoil within the different countries. Part of it driven by these anxieties over the economy and immigration. Again, what happens in the United States will be critical in in trying to determine what kind of framework we develop to move forward on Paris. Some people have already kind of given up on Paris. Others think it might be revitalized with the re-entry of the United States. And I think action over the next two years will be focused on trying to defeat Trump within the United States and then to get the United States actively involved again in Paris. And with that, we might have kind of a new framework, a new vision of how we move forward. Professor Swoboda, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Terry Algano. And thank you for tuning in to this month's episode. 